Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to Sibline's podcast series. I'm Liana Samchuk, lead Europe and Eurasia analyst, and I'm joined by Alex Lord and Sophia Wolford, our Europe and Eurasia analysts, to discuss the latest deadly protests in Kazakhstan, which began over the New Year's weekend and were initially triggered by a steep surge in fuel prices. Although energy and security related protests are not uncommon across Central Asia, these particular demonstrations resulted in high levels of violence and a number of casualties as they were met by brutal government crackdown. Also, unlike previous demonstrations, the most recent events spread across the country and evolved into broader calls for political change. All of this is, of course, raising questions about Kazakhstan's socio-political stability moving forward, broader regional implications, and naturally the view from Moscow. So, Alex, Sofia, thank you both for joining me. Although the situation in Kazakhstan has calmed compared to last week, could you please briefly talk about these events and what are some of the domestic political implications of this latest crisis? Well, the first protest erupted in Western Kazakhstan on the 2nd of January after state subsidies on liquefied natural gas were lifted, which has led to a steep price in the price of petrol. The protests, however, were fueled by wider dissatisfaction with living standards, including high inequality and increasing food and energy prices due to inflation. By the 5th of January, violent protests were taking place across the country. In response, the government promised to reduce fuel prices introduced a state of emergency and curfew in several cities, unlimited access to internet services, but anti-government demonstrations continued nevertheless. In the heavy-handed crackdown that followed, more than 160 people were killed and six to 8,000 people were arrested. Notably, President Kasim Joma Tokayev announced that he will succeed Kazakhstan long-term ruler Nursultan Nazarbayev as the chairman of the Security Council, and appealed to the Russian-led Collective Security Treaty Organization, or CSTO, for half last week to restore order in the country. It was announced today that CSTO forces will be leaving Kazakhstan in 10 days after the mission was deemed successful. Tokayev also appointed a new prime minister, Alikham Smailov, who served in the previous regime, signaling that government stability is improving considerably compared to last week. Yeah, so I think it's interesting to see the inter- elite dynamics at play here as well. And I think they'll have an increasingly important role in the ensuing crisis in Kazakhstan. One of the major rallying cries of the protesters during the unrest was against the enduring power of ex-president Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, who stepped down as president in 2019, but retained significant influence and control over the country in his role as leader of the nation, or Elbasi, as he's known in Kazakh. I think it's of great significance that one of the very first things President Tokayev did when unrest started to escalate last week was announced that he was replacing Nazarbayev as chairman of the Security Council and then subsequently arrest Karim Mazimov, the head of the security service and longtime Nazarbayev loyalist, alongside other allies of the former president in the government. It is clear that we are currently witnessing a major transition period for the Kazakh governing elite, and the CSTO intervention clearly indicates which side the Kremlin now supports. But I think, interestingly, in a speech on the 11th of January, President Dukayev openly criticised Nazarbayev and the fact that lucrative companies and oligarchs, as he termed them, appeared under his rule. 
Now, Takayev has subsequently indicated that his new government will look into these unnamed companies and oligarchs, which he accuses of having diminished competition in the country, to ascertain the wealth or the extent of their wealth, and um, I quote, give the people what belongs to them, end quote. So Takayev has already actually ordered the shutting down of a recycling monopoly linked to Nazarbayev's youngest daughter. And so I think in the coming days, we could see open elite infighting materialise between Nazarbayev loyalists and Tukayev as the president launches an assault on Nazarbayev-linked oligarchs and business interests. While this presents an opportunity for economic reform, given the entrenched um, corruption and opaque economic systems in the country, I think most immediately this will significantly increase policy risk for international firms operating across the country, given the extensive influence of the extended Nazarbayev patronage networks and its grip over the Kazakh economy. So economic uncertainty will thus remain high in in the coming days, particularly if Tokayev introduces dramatic wealth redistribution policies in a bid to shore up support for his newly consolidated regime. So this crisis is far from over, and and we could yet see inter-elite infighting drive further domestic instability in the coming days and weeks, despite the fact that the government has now restored order across the country. Great. Thank you both very much. Lots of developments, as we can see there. And interestingly, also, the the timing of this crisis also coincides with another ongoing crisis, which is between Ukraine and Russia, and of course, fears of potential Russian intervention in Ukraine. So Russia has notably also increased its involvement in Belarus over the course of the year following the political crisis there. So arguably, President Tokayev made a risky decision to appeal to Moscow for help. To that end, what are some implications of this decision and what does this latest incident in Kazakhstan put potentially indicate about Russia's role in the region in the year and years ahead? Yeah, so President Kaya's appeal for help from the Collective Security Treaty Organization, or the CSTO, is a major precedent which will undoubtedly have significant implications for the security environment really right across the former Soviet Union for many years to come, I think. So firstly, a bit of context. The CSTO is a Russian-led military alliance akin to NATO, really, with many of the former Soviet states members of the alliance, namely Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, as well as, of course, Russia. Now, the Kazakhstan crisis marked the first time the alliance's mutual defence clause had been invoked and acted upon. And in an alliance conference given on the 10th of January, it is clear that the alliance as a whole is maintaining that the unrest in Kazakhstan was orchestrated by external factors, which ultimately necessitated an alliance intervention. These external factors, namely international terrorist networks, which President Tokayev alleges were behind the attempted coup d'etat, which Putin supports these allegations. Ultimately, it remains unclear at this stage to what extent jihadist extremists were involved in the unrest. But in terms of the broader geopolitical environment in the region, I think the, the rapid deployment of CSTO troops to shore up the stability of an autocratic regime has clearly set a major precedent going forward. So at the alliance conference I just mentioned, Vladimir Putin underlined that the CSTO would not allow further so-called colour revolutions uh, to take place in the former Soviet Union. Here he's referencing numerous popular uprisings that have toppled a number of governments in recent years, namely in Armenia, Georgia and Ukraine. Now, opposing so-called colour revolutions 
has long been central to the Kremlin's foreign and indeed, arguably, most importantly of all, uh, domestic policy. But the Kazakhstan crisis and Putin's subsequent comments have clearly indicated that Russia is now committed to proactively deploying military and political support to Russia-aligned regimes right across the region. This region, of course, being the former Soviet Union, which Moscow very much considers its backyard and its sphere of influence. So this fairly limited military deployment, which, as Shafia mentioned, is, is due to wrap up later this month, um, has gone a long way to consolidating Russia's status as the primary security guarantor in the region, uh, particularly following the US withdrawal from Afghanistan last year. Now, interestingly, you mentioned that this does indeed come amongst ever closer alignment between Russia and Belarus, and indeed the current situation on Ukraine's borders. I think the, the CSTO intervention in Kazakhstan is the sort of it's the logical next iteration of the Kremlin's policy of supporting various allied autocratic regimes with limited military and security assistance. We've seen this manifest in not only Belarus, where, as you mentioned, the Kremlin has backed strongman Alexander Lukashenko in the wake of their own unprecedented unrest in 2020, but of course also in Syria. And while, of course, the situations there are very different, we're clearly seeing a pattern emerge wherein the Kremlin is actively helping various governments deal with attempted revolutions. I think, as a bit of an aside, I suppose, it's interesting to note that there are clear historical parallels here. Tsar Alexander I formed his so-called Holy Alliance in the 19th century, which saw Russian troops deployed to put down various anti-monarchist rebellions across Europe to shore up the regimes of his fellow monarchs. Now, while I wouldn't want to push the comparison too far, I think it's interesting that we're seeing a similar pattern emerge in Eurasia today, which will likely go a long way to shoring up the stability, I think, of and Russian-aligned autocratic regimes that will now be much more confident of Russian support going forward if indeed widespread anti-government unrest does threaten their regime. Obviously, this will, of course, significantly enhance Russian influence across the region and increase various regimes' reliance upon the Kremlin's support, as we've seen has been the case in Belarus in particular. Thank you, Alex. And, and speaking a bit more about Russia and the domestic situation there, do you think that this will shape Putin's calculations about his own future ahead of 2024 presidential elections? And there have been, of course, a lot of speculations about Putin's future and whether he will seek to stay on as president. But do you think that the uprisings in Belarus and Kazakhstan potentially make him more likely to stay on as president? This is actually an interesting question. Now, I think prior to the crisis, Kazakhstan was very much seen as a sort of exemplar of autocratic stability, if you like, with the political transition we saw in 2019, similarly seen as a potential model for other regimes to replicate or take inspiration from. Nazarbayev's transition from president to chairman of the Security Council in 2019, I think it allowed him to retain significant influence and control over the state while designating his preferred successor, which was the current president, Tokayev. Now, this Kazakh formula, if you like, has been proffered as a potential option for Putin if and when he should decide to retire from frontline politics. And obviously, as you mentioned, we have the, the 2024 presidential election approaching, but it's unclear what Putin plans to do. I think ultimately, though, the, the Kazakhstan crisis has clearly illustrated the potential dangers of even such an ostensibly successful and managed transition, as we saw when Nazarbayev stepped down and assumed 
a sort of supra-presidential position as leader of the nation, this, this position which he created for himself. As I mentioned earlier, it appears that elite infighting remains a major dimension to this crisis, which is far from, from resolved, I think, with Nazarbayev now seemingly sidelined potentially and his status and actually indeed the status of his extensive patronage network now unclear. I think given the rapidity with which Tokayev deprived Nazarbayev and his longtime ally uh, Mazimov of their control of the security apparatus at the start of this crisis, I think it's likely that such a leader of the nation type solution will no longer appear as attractive or indeed secure to Putin going forward. Ultimately, I think the Kremlin will be keen to learn the lessons of its neighbour in this regard, as a scenario Putin will not want to see replicated in Russia during any future political transition. I think in terms of immediate implications for Russia, though, I think this will only reinforce the Kremlin's increasing crackdown of any and all opposition in 2022. And indeed, I think it's important to note at this point just how different place Russia is now to what it was even a year ago when Alexei Navalny was threatening nationwide protests of tens of thousands on the streets, which now under various reforms and and repressive legislation appears much less likely going forward. So in the wake of the Kazakhstan crisis, I think we're going to see autocrats right across Eurasia utilising repression even more openly than before as stability remains the key geopolitical priority for the Kremlin. But in terms of Putin's position, I think, you know, the the jury's still out. We'll have to see what he does. But I think certainly um, any political transition now looks a lot more dangerous than it did a few weeks ago. Great. Thanks so much, Alex. Definitely a lot to watch out for, not just in Kazakhstan, but also in terms of the implications for domestic politics in Russia. And as you mentioned, the, the crisis in, in Kazakhstan, although it has calmed a bit now, is unlikely to be completely over. So the question that I have is regarding some tangible implications for businesses as a result of the situation. Can you highlight some implications to look out for in the longer term and which sectors are most at risk of disruption should the situation once again deteriorate? Kazakhstan is the world's largest uranium producer. Therefore, the conflict led to an 8% increase in uranium prices and a surge in shares of mining companies outside Kazakhstan. Nevertheless, the protests are unlikely to cause significant supply disruptions. And while uranium prices are expected to remain high due to increased demand worldwide, the unrest in Kazakhstan are unlikely to affect uranium prices significantly in the near to long term. Kazakhstan is also a key exporter of oil and natural gas, although production was not disrupted during the protests, leading only to limited volatility in commodity prices that are expected to rebound now that the protests were quelled rather quickly. While the CSTO intervention led to increased government stability in Kazakhstan in the short term, the events will have long-term implications for foreign companies in the future. For instance, it is likely that the tech sector will have to face greater scrutiny from the Tokayev regime with potential crackdowns on digital companies perceived to be providing a platform for free speech and anti-government sentiments. Lastly, policy and security risks for international NGOs are also expected to increase as the regime will likely look to suppress the work of civil society organizations in the future. The socio-economic drivers of the unrest and dissatisfaction with the country's political leadership are likely to persist. Therefore, we expect the government to take a more heavy-handed approach in the future and further limit human rights in the country. 
Uh, great. Thank you both very much for joining me, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the future. We're now joined by Sabrina Mangum, our Associate Analyst, to highlight some key events to look out for in the days and the week ahead. Thanks, Liana. Small business owners in Seoul have announced protests from the 10th to 12th of January to highlight the impact of the government's COVID-19 restrictions on their businesses and livelihoods. Demonstrators will likely hold rallies in Uido, the financial district, and where the National Assembly building is located. Previous such protests went mostly peacefully, with some limited short-term disruption to local traffic. In Africa, Nigerian nurses and midwives have planned strikes for the 12th of January in Lagos um, against inadequate pay and poor working conditions. Related protests may be held in the vicinity of hospitals and government buildings. Moving further north, UK Foreign Secretary Liz Trust will meet with European Commission Vice President Mara Sokovic on the 13th of January to discuss trade disruptions caused by the Northern Ireland Protocol. The talks come shortly after Trust threatened to invoke Article 16, which would suspend parts of the post-Brexit deal between the EU and the UK. If trade talks regarding Northern Ireland are not fruitful and Article 16 is triggered, the UK should expect the EU to retaliate by imposing tariffs on UK goods over the coming months. In Latin America, public sector workers in Brazil are launching staggered strikes from the 18th of January over the government's failure to include salary increase promises in the 2022 budget. Businesses operating within Brazil should expect localized disruptions during strike days. Elsewhere in the region, unions and civil society groups in Ecuador have scheduled protests for the 19th of January in rejection of President Lasso's economic policies. Violence between law enforcement and protesters are likely, with potential for clashes on the streets of Quito and Guayaquil. Meanwhile, in Asia, a senior delegation of Pakistani officers, headed by the National Security Advisor Maweed Yusuf, is set to visit Afghanistan between the 17th and 18th of January, amid tensions recorded along the Afghan-Pakistan border over Pakistan's erected barbed wire fencing. Over the past few weeks, videos have surfaced on social media of Taliban fighters uprooting a portion of the fence along the border, claiming it was Afghan territory. The meeting is significant as it aims to find a diplomatic solution to the issue. De-escalation is essential to ensure the vital cross-border trade between both sides remains unaffected. The delegation also aims to discuss aid efforts in Afghanistan where harsh winters are deepening the dire humanitarian crises. If you would like any further information about the topics discussed today, please feel free to reach out to us at info at sibline.co.uk.